finishing up today our series over generosity. And I hope you've appreciated it and hope you've enjoyed it. And someone told me to wonder, or asked me, said, Keith, you're the new pastor at the church and you're doing a four-week series over generosity. You're not going to bring people your, to your church. You're going to drive them away from your church preaching for four weeks on generosity. But here's what I've tried to do over the last three weeks and we'll conclude today is look at generosity from not the preacher's perspective, not the church's perspective, but from biblical perspective. And we've taken the time over the last three weeks, we've looked at it from the King David's perspective. We've looked at it from his son Solomon's perspective. We for sure looked at generosity as Jesus looked at it there in the New Testament. And today we're going to wrap up and look at generosity from the perspective of the Apostle Paul. Now, over these last three weeks, what I've tried to do is do it and teach it and bring it in such a way that regardless of where you are financially, that you could appreciate and even like take a step towards generosity. Because I don't think generosity has anything to do with how much money we have in the bank. It's simply the affection of our heart and what we want to do with the money that we have in the bank. And so hopefully over the last three weeks that I've not driven you away, that you're back here today, that we've all learned something about what the Bible says about generosity. But today, as we finish this series, I want to do a little bit more laser focus on generosity. Rather than doing like a shotgun approach that maybe apply to everybody, today as I talk about generosity from the Apostle Paul's perspective, I want to talk specifically only to the rich people in the room. Now, you may think, well, I could leave right now because I know I'm not rich. I can go ahead and take a nap right now. I know I'm not rich. Let me just kind of describe rich to you. There was a study recently done in the year 2000. The, 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 the government did a study, and they wanted to know how many people in America, how many families in America have a net worth of over $100 million. And in the year 2000, there were 7,000 families in the United States of America that had a net worth of over $100 million. If that's you and you're here today, we're so glad you're a South Sub Church. I want to talk to you about generosity. Um, I'm kidding. Um, now, that's changed. That was back in the year 2000. They did the same study in the year 2020, and here's what they found out, that there's over 20,000 families with a net worth of $100 million. Can we all agree that would be rich? Okay, if I had $100 million, I would be rich. Now, none of us fit in that category, so let's bring it down a little bit. They also did the same research, and they looked to see in the year 2023 how many families in America have a net worth of over $10 million. Can you guess how many? Over 20,000 families have over, I'm sorry, not in the 20,000s, um, it's in the million. And, let me just back up, okay? I start talking about money and I get all flustered, okay? Especially if we talk about those kind of riches in there. In the year 2023, families with over $10 million in net worth, there's over 1 million families in the United States of America. So as we're going to talk about generosity today, I want to talk to the rich people. But you're going, Keith, you're still not talking to me because I definitely don't fit in one of those two categories. You're not signing up to buy the Denver Broncos or put money into the Colorado Rockies. You're not that kind of wealth. Well, let me just explain this to us. We all are rich in this room. In fact, did you know this? That there is less distance between your financial state and Bill Gates' financial state than there is your financial state and most people who live outside the United States of America. Let me say that again. Talking about rich. There is less distance between how much money Bill Gates has and how much money you have than how much money you have and how much money most people who live outside the United States of America have. So if you put it in context, often we think of rich as how much money is in my bank account, but rich is really being relative, isn't it? It's all relative to how much money someone else doesn't have. And so I think if we're going to talk to the rich people 
here, that's probably all of us. Because God has blessed us in some way. We may not have as much money as we wish we had. And we may not even have as much money as we once had. But we still have more money than most of the people in the world. In fact, if you're sitting in this room right now, the statistics tell us that you are richer than 99% of all people in the entire world. So we are indeed rich. So may I say it again? I want to preach to the rich people today. I'm still not sure you think you're rich, so would you turn to the person next to you and just look at them going, I need to let you know you're rich. Okay, just turn to them right now let them know you're rich. In fact, I don't want to just preach to the person next to you. I want to preach to you today. So whoever got said that to, will you turn to the person next to you and say, you need to know I am rich. Let them know. Now, if somebody just looked at you and just said, I'm rich, now look at them going, then good, you're buying lunch this afternoon right after church because we're all rich. But here's what I want to do. I really do want us to look at, continue looking at generosity with the mindset of it's really not about me because I don't have much to give. It's all about us being rich in who God made us. And so if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn to um, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, if you don't have your Bibles, we'll have it up here on the screen. But here's what's taking place in the book of 1 Timothy. The Apostle Paul is writing to his young mentee, Timothy. Timothy was just beginning the pastoral ship. He's got some churches he's trying to oversee. And so Paul is trying to mentor him and help him lead these individual churches that Timothy is pastoring over. And in these particular churches that Timothy is a pastor over, there was indeed rich people in the room, or in, in, in the church. They were people that had accumulated wealth, had found some entrepreneurship as in some of the port towns that they resided in. And so they were finding wealth, but they were also people that had found faith as well. They began following Jesus with their life. And so the people in young Timothy's church, they were trying to understand how do you marry their wealth, their riches, their finances that they had, and their new relationship with Christ. And I think as we begin looking at this study in these verses, it's so applicable to us too because we need to be asking the same question in our life. How do we marry our finances and our relationship with Christ? And the key word in there is marry. So many people say, no, I have my finances and I have my Jesus, and they kind of don't cross too much. We may tip Jesus every once in a while. We may even tithe to Jesus sometimes, but I don't really want to intermarry them together because then they coexist together. We want them to kind of two separate entities in there. But, but what Paul is going to show us through young Timothy here in this book, in this, in this letter, is that God's intention is for us to take our wealth, our finances, or may we say our riches, and how do we marry them into our relationship and following Jesus with our life. And so here's what Paul writes there in that first verse in verse 17 of chapter 6. He writes to, Paul, or to Timothy, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, he says, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So in that first verse, here's what the Apostle Paul was telling Timothy and he's telling us today. There is nothing wrong with riches. There is nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with having savings in our bank account. But there are pitfalls that comes with riches. There are pitfalls. In fact, if you're taking notes on your bulletin, that's the first one that you fill in there. And it says this, riches can create arrogance and personal identity. So the first pitfall says this, riches can create arrogance in our personal identity. Money allows us to buy things. Nothing wrong with buying things. 
But the things often are the very essence of our life that give us identity. I'll never forget when Denise and I, we'd been married four, five, six years. The kids were right in middle age, uh, middle elementary school age. And so we decided it was time to chain, trade in our Toyota Corolla and buy us a minivan. There was this moment of grief in my life that I had to actually become a man who drove a minivan. But there was a moment of realism there going, this is what we need. And so we began shopping when the kids were middle, middle elementary school of getting our very first minivan. And, you know, there were different car makers and models out there. And we got our eyes on the Toyota Sienna. And you know why we got our eyes fixated on the Toyota Sienna? Because as we took the kids to school every day, it looked like all the cool parents, all the parents who had it together, they were driving Toyota Siennas. And so we wanted to be one of those parents. And we didn't want just any, any kind of Toyota Sienna. We wanted the kind, remember when they had the TVs that came on the back of the, uh, of the, of the, back, or the front seat there? And so we wanted to make sure everybody, as we're driving at night, we were going to turn that TV on, VCR, that VD, DVD player on full blast. So anybody driving by is going, wow, look at that family. They have a Toyota Sienna. And they have a movie screen for their kids to watch. That family has it together. Now, here's my confession. By the time we could afford and bought our Toyota Sienna, it was used. It had the VCR tapes that would play the movies. By then, the world had graduated to DVD player, so we couldn't even play anything. But we still look good having that little TV screen up there. But we had our very first Toyota Sienna. And I remember driving around town with my kids going, oh. I may be a dad, but I'm a cool dad because I have this Toyota Sienna. We drove that thing the first year, the second year, and I'm thinking, this is good. By the third year, you're going, this is old, okay? I bought this thing used, now it's older. Everybody's got some nicer van, but we knew we had to keep paying for it and keep fording it and keep driving it, so we just kept using it. We got to the fourth year, and that became the best van, the best vehicle I'd ever owned in my life. You know why? Because it was paid for. I love that Toyota Sienna. It was the best vehicle I could ever drive. We drove it another year and another year. And finally, we drove it long enough that my son turned 16 years old. And this Toyota Sienna had become part of our identity. Our identity that when we first bought it, we were kind of like, yeah, we're kind of like the better parents. We got the Toyota Sienna. We got the better van than you have. But it also kind of became just this possession that identified us. And so I thought to myself, what a great way to pass along the family identity to my children. You see where this is going. Now, let me, understand, let me explain something. I have two children. My son is more the obedient, yes, dad. And my daughter's more kind of the freewheeling, don't put me in a box type of person. So when I handed the keys of this van over to my son when he turned 16, he was the most appreciative, nice dad. Thanks so much. I mean, this is part of the family. Be part of me. Thank you. He drove it his year. My daughter turned 16. So I said, I want you also to have this identity of this man. And I handed her the keys. She rolled her eyes. And she looked at me and says, I'm not about to drive that car anywhere. How embarrassing, Dad. Here's why I share that story with you. It is funny. It is ironic. And it's interesting that the very possession that I used our riches to purchase became part of the family identity that was positive on this end. But by the time we were done with it, it was negative on this end. Now, you know why I share that story with you with great confidence? Not because I'm humble, because I know you can share the same story about your life. There is something you've bought, whether it's a toy, whether it's a, 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 a grown man's toy or grown woman's toy or something at the mall or a car or, or whatever it is, that you thought, I just have to have that. And you used your riches to buy it because you thought it would change your life. 
because you thought it would make you feel better, because you thought it would make you look better to the world. And it might have for a season, but before long, it no longer had that same value. Yet here's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He said, with our riches, with our wealth, with our finances, we have to be very, very careful because if we're not careful, we will create arrogance as these possessions we purchase become part of our identity. Again, the Apostle Paul is not writing to Timothy to tell the church. The Apostle Paul is not trying to instruct South Sub Church that riches are wrong, that wealth is wrong, that finance is wrong. He's saying, but be careful, there's a pitfall when you have those things. Because the money allows you to buy stuff, and the stuff can become your identity. And when that identity takes over, many times we become arrogant because we puff our chest up and we say, look at what I have, and I'm better than the next person over. So the Paul's just going, be careful. There is a pitfall of that wealth. But he had another pitfall too. Look down with me. At, um, it says this in your second fill in the blank. Riches can create an unhealthy hope in personal resources. The second pitfall that, that Paul points out is riches can create an unhealthy hope in personal resources. Here, here's the good news about money. It takes care of most of our problems, doesn't it? If you go home today and your hot water heater is leaking and you've got some extra money in the bank, guess what? You can call a plumber and that problem is taken care of. If you're driving home this afternoon, you go to press the brake and there's a grinding noise, you realize you need some new brake pads, guess what? If you have some riches, some wealth, some finances, some extra finances, those, those finances, that money can pretty much take care of the problem of your grinding brakes. If you go to the doctor tomorrow and the doctor says, ooh, this is not good, we're going to have to put you in the hospital and do surgery, then the money may not fix your health, but the money will pay for the doctor, will pay for the hospital, will pay for the medicine, and there's a good chance that that money will actually help to take care of your problems of your health. And so the good thing about having riches, riches and wealth and finances, is that money will take care of most of our problems. Here's what we need to know, that money creates a very comfortable cycle in our life. I've got a problem, I go to the bank, I get the money, I fix my problem. I keep living life, I have a problem, I go to the bank, I get the money, I fix my problem, life goes on. And it creates a very comfortable cycle. Now, and understand, I'm not saying at all it's wrong or unbiblical to have that money to take care of your problem. In fact, if you look throughout Scripture, especially in Proverbs, it talks about saving money and having a good plan moving forward and being ready for the future. God is all about that. But here's the problem with a comfortable cycle. It can oftentimes turn into a vicious cycle. I have a problem, I get my money, I fix my problem. I have another problem, I get my money, and I fix my problem. And the comfortable cycle turns into a vicious cycle because we quit relying on God to help us with our problems. Because as long as I got money, I don't have to worry, stress, and pray to God. My money takes care of my problems. And so that's the reason the point in there that Paul is trying to make is that money, or money, riches, can create an unhealthy hope in our resources. In fact, here's what we need to understand. There's a big difference between putting your hope in riches and having your hope, and, and, and there's a big difference in putting your hope in riches and having and in having hope and riches at the same time. Let me say that again because I just confused myself on that one. Are you ready for this? 
There's a difference between putting your hope in riches rather than having hope and riches at the same time. There is nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with blessing you with God blessing you with finances. But when we begin putting our hope and our trust in our money more than we do God, we fall in the pitfall of leaving God out of our lives. In fact, the book of Proverbs chapter 18 verse 11 says this, the rich think their wealth protects them. They imagine themselves safe behind it. It's almost like when we have this money, we imagine that our, our, our money takes care of us, so it just builds this big wall that protects us from anything that comes our way. And the, proverb, the writer of Proverbs says this, and they imagined themselves safe behind it. But how many people have felt like they are safe behind their wealth wall, and that wall at some point comes tumbling down, and the money can't take care of things? The wall that we need to hide behind is the wall of faith. The money that the wall that we need to hide behind is not one we think like money that will protect us, but it's our trust in Almighty God that will take care of us. And so Paul writes to Timothy. He writes to the churches that Timothy's leading, but he also writes to South Sub Church. And he's simply saying this one there is nothing wrong with wealth, but beware of the pitfalls that comes with your riches. And so here's my question If there is nothing wrong with wealth, So we're all well, working hard and saving and planning to have some riches in our life, whether it's a little or a lot, whether you fall in the $100 million or just a $10 in the savings account, but we're all working towards that. How do we defend ourselves from these pitfalls? How do you accumulate and get ready for the future and have some money to help you and enjoy, but yet not fall in the very pitfalls that Paul is talking about? Well, as Paul is writing Timothy, he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he gives him some actual suggestions and commands on here's how you avoid the pitfalls. Let me read verse 18 to you. So Paul writes again to Timothy, but he writes to South Sub Church. Command them. So notice that word command. Don't just suggest to them. Don't offer up as plan B. He's going, no, no, this is what you need to tell the followers of Jesus. If they want to marry their wealth and marry their relationship with Jesus and not fall in the very pitfalls that wealth can bring, this is what they must do. And he simply says four quick things. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, and to be willing to share. There you go. Wrap this sermon all up. If you do those four things, you won't fall in the pitfalls. Now, as I look at those four four things, they look very similar, but yet as you pull back the Greek and you look deeper into it, you realize Paul is actually saying there's four specific things, different yet same, but four specific things that we need to make sure we're doing in our lives. And let me break those down for you. And the first one, you can fill in your blank. He says this, we need to live unselfishly generous with your riches. We need to live unselfishly generous with our riches you know when Jesus was on this earth when he began his ministry his goal was to do good to others no matter where he went he did good by making the blind see he did good by giving hope to the adulterous woman he did good no matter what or where he went who knew no matter who he was with he was always trying to do good and in fact as his ministry progressed he took this idea of doing good that he was doing and he handed it over to his disciples and said and you too need to do, go do good in the name of our father in heaven and those same instructions are passed along to us that we need to be kind to be others. We need to share with others. That we need to consider others. The scripture is full of ways that you and I are to do good to those around us. Well, wouldn't it make sense 
that if we've been instructed by Jesus to do good to those around us in all of our lives, that we should also consider doing good to others with our finances. And so that's the reason in the first instruction, he says we need to live unselfishly with those, um, with, 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 with a, live unselfishly generous with our riches. So as you think about your extra, as you think about your wealth, as you think about your riches, the question is how can you live with it and use it unselfishly to do good to others? Here's the second thing he says. Not only are we to live unselfishly generous with our riches, he says this, that we are to live continually generous with our riches. To live continually generous with, with our riches. He's trying to give the connotation in this short, simple commandment. He's trying to give the connotation, he's trying to give the commandment not to do an act of kindness, but to live a lifestyle of kindness. Let me say that again. God, or, or Paul is instructing us not to just simply every once in a while do an act of kindness, but we are to do it so continuously that we have a lifestyle of kindness that we're living. You know, I think back several months ago, um, it was the beginning of school, and, and I announced to you that we were trying to adopt one of the local elementary schools, and I talked to John Hopkins Elementary School, and they're like, yes, we'd love for a South Sub to adopt us. And so we did a special thing, just kind of a spur of the moment, and we adopted every single teacher at John Hopkins Elementary, and you guys made baskets for them. It was an amazing time because we had more people volunteering to do baskets to bless these teachers than we had teachers that we could do it for. I mean, it was just amazing. And I think back to South Sub Church, I'm going, God, how fortunate, how blessed am I as a pastor that I get to be a part of a church that does kind acts like that. But here's what I say about South Sub Church. It's not kind acts. It truly is a lifestyle of kind acts. Because a few months later, just a few weeks ago, we did the Operation Christmas Child. And we had many, many of those shoe boxes that you filled full of toys and different things that are being sent to children all around the world in order that we can not only bless them and have a good Christmas, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is placed in that box so these kids can hear about Jesus. And it's not like we had to stand up going, please, 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 can we get one more person? We need one more person. You came in droves to those boxes. And I'm thinking, what a continuous, ongoing, just active kindness as far as sharing things that our church is. I think of the many ministry partnerships that we deal with. Many of you are bringing blanks out there that we, blankets that we give to people that are need them during this season. I'm thinking of love being, I could go on and on, all these ministry partnerships that we have. You're going, you just give and you give and you give. And it's not like they're seasonal things, it's an ongoing generosity. And so South Sub Church, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being a church that continually lives generously. I also think about this, as we're preaching right here in this room right now, there are people online that are able to join us online because several years ago we realized that we were not up to date on our online technology and this church gave almost $500,000 that we could get up to date and we're taking the very message that you're hearing today and someone who's not able to physically get here this morning is able to watch it and worship with us online because you're continually giving. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you, thank you. Now, the question is, how do you continue to live generously? Uh, how, how do you not make it just this periodic thing? Or how do we just keep going in the venue and the, and, and, and the way that we're going about it right now? And here's what I say. We have to continue to look for it if we're going to continue to live 
sharingly. If we're going to continue to live generously, we have to continue to look for it. So here's a promise I make to you. Over the months to come, you may hear many times from this pulpit, from the stage, from the church, just going, here's an opportunity that you can give generously. And we're simply going to put them out there to give you the opportunity to respond. Now, I don't want you to respond because, oh, no, there's one more thing. I feel guilty if I don't. No, no, don't, fall, don't, don't respond out of guilt. Simply just say, Jesus, where my eyes need to see and where does my heart need to go when I see these opportunities? But we simply want to be looking for opportunities that we can live continuously generous in our approach just like the Apostle Paul does. Because when we do that, we avoid the very pitfalls that our wealth can bring us. Let me give you a third thing that Paul says there. He says this, that we need to live um, not just continuously generous, not just unselfishly, but we need to live also expectantly generous with our riches. To live expectantly generous with our riches. When Denise and I first started ministry 30 years ago, we were as poor as poor could be. We might have been rich. We still might have been in the 1%, but we're in the very bottom of that 1%. I, I remember we were living on love and God that whole time. We got our first apartment. We could barely buy groceries. We had one of the kids in our youth group that worked at a barbecue shack and another kid that worked at a cookie shop in the mall. And every night when those two guys got off work, they would come knock on our door and they would leave. one would leave a bag of ribs and one would leave a bag, leave a bag of cookies. And that's what we lived on for the first three months months of our married life I mean we didn't have anything but I was working this church as a youth pastor and my boss the education pastor walked up to me one day and he stuck his hand out he said hey Keith how are you doing and when he shook my hand there was something in his hand his palm that he was giving me and I took my hand back he had given me what he referred to as a hundred dollar handshake and I took that and he said Keith let me share this with you he said I was in your place many years ago when God has blessed me and my wife we have more finances now than you and Denise do he said, so here's what God's taught me. He said, I always carry a $100 bill in my pocket, and when the Spirit leads me, I just give somebody a $100 handshake. I want you to know, at that point, 24 years old, broke, beloved Jesus, that $100 felt like a million dollars. And I'm going, he had that. You know why? Because he lived expectantly. He didn't look at me going, oh, I need to go to the bank and then go to the bank but get busy doing something and never got the $100 back to me. He had it in his pocket and he said, when I give this $100 away, I go straight to the bank and I put another $100 bill in my pocket. I don't give everybody a $100 handshake. He said, but I live looking expectantly and ready when God's spirit nudges me. And I started thinking about that. I wonder how many hundred dollar handshakes I've missed because I don't carry a hundred dollar in my billfold let's make it easier I wonder how many times have I missed affirming and encouraging somebody because I didn't have a stamp ready to put on that card that I wrote for them I wonder how many times I've missed praying for somebody because the spirit nudged me to text them or call them but I got busy doing something else here's what I'm getting at if we don't live expectantly, and expectantly, if we don't live ready to be generous, we will miss the opportunities to be generous. When Denise and I got married, she taught me really quick, what's mine is hers and what's hers is not mine. That's just kind of the rule of our life that we do. And the way that works, if she ever needs money and she comes to my wallet and opens it up, whatever's in there is her money. And so for the first few years of our marriage, I'm going, I never have money in my pocket because she, what's mine is hers. So I learned a trick. And she's not in this service, and if I want her to know my trick, I'll tell her myself. So let's just leave it between us. 
I will always get a little bit of stash cash and I fold it up like three times and I can stick it between two credit cards in my wallet and she never knows that money's there. So then when she goes to open up my wallet, what's mine is hers, but if there's none in mine, then hers can't have it. You follow me how this works? So that's my trick. I kind of keep it over here so she can't know about it. She can't find it. She can't use it. Watch this. I wonder how many times we do that with our wealth with God. It's over here. I just can't get to it. It's over here. It's just too inconvenient to access right now. And God's going, I'm not trying to take all of it. I just want you to know what's mine is yours, what's yours is mine. I gave it to you. Let's just be ready to use it when we see an opportunity to be generous. Does that make sense? And so Paul says, listen, if you want to guard yourselves from the pitfalls of wealth, if you want to guard yourself from the pitfalls of having extra money, then you simply just need to live in a way that it is expectant, that you're expectantly generous, that you are ready to give it. Someone asked me, well, how do you do that? Here's, here's two quick suggestions for you. Here's how I try to do that. First of all, meditate on God's word, what you already know about generosity. I'm telling you, this, this series, I'm preaching, I'm studying, but it's messed me up. That I thought 10% is God and 90% is mine. That's why I've been living my life. God, I tithe you. Aren't you proud of me? And I've learned from my very first sermon with, with David that 100% of whatever I have is God's. And he's just allowed me to be a steward, not of 90% and him get 10%. He's allowed me to be the steward of all 100%. And over these last three weeks, I have meditated on that and thought on that. And it is changing my perspective and making me and leading me to live more expectantly, generously. And so how do, you, how do you live expectantly? We meditate on the truths that we find in God's word about generosity, which then begins to mold not just our heart, it begins to mold our hands. Here's something else. Just simply have money ready. Okay? Put $100 in your back pocket. If it's not $100, put $10 in your back pocket. One of the things that Denise and I have done over, our life, over the course of our, our marriage life is that we tithe, but sometimes we'll take some money beyond the tithe and we just go ahead and take cash out and we set it in, a, in an envelope in our house and just going, okay, God, you're going to lead us to somebody or something or some ministry organization that needs that. And having it ready keeps us to act at the moment. Because here's the confession. If we don't act at the moment the Spirit is leading us, we need to go home, hey, we, honey, we need to talk about this. I know we need to talk about it, but can we watch this next Netflix show real quick? And, and then I'm tired and I'm ready to go to bed and tomorrow gets busy. And whatever the Spirit was nudging us, within a day or two, we no longer sense the Spirit nudging in the same way. And we miss the opportunity that God put for us because we weren't expectantly ready for it. So that's just a simple, practical ways that we can live expectantly generous. L let me give you the last one here. The last thing that Paul says in his verse, in his little commandment, verse 18, he says to live affectionately generous with your riches. To live affectionately generous. If you go back to verse 18, he says in these particular words, he says, be willing to share. And, and the focus is not on the sharing. That's the generosity. The focus is on be willing. And that willing word is a word about the heart. It is a word about the affection. And he's going, here's what I want you to do, that your generosity needs to come out of your affection and not your obligation. Because if it comes out of our obligation, once you obligate something and you check off the box, you're done with it. But if it comes out of the affection of your heart, you want to give more and more and more. 
In fact, the reality is this. All of our generosity should be coming from a place of affection. John 3.16 says this. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. He didn't give Jesus to us because he felt obligated. He didn't give Jesus to us because he would feel guilty if he didn't. He gave Jesus to us, his son, to die on the cross for our sins. The greatest gift of generosity, the greatest act of generosity, he gave Jesus out of the affection of his heart. And so as we lead our lives to be more and more like Jesus, as we lead our lives to be more and more like God, our generosity if we want to protect ourselves from the, pitfall, pit, the pitfalls of wealth, should come out of affection for God. Because he gave so lavishly to me, I can afford to give so lavishly to others. I still go back to when I was in the fourth grade. In the fourth grade, I was walking in Six Flags over Texas in Arlington, Texas. And I'd been going to church and hearing those stories and thinking about asking Jesus in my heart. But as a fourth grader, I was always too busy not there yet. And for some reason, fourth grade, I'm walking down the streets of Six Flags over Texas. And the Holy Spirit begins to knock at my heart. And the Holy Spirit begins to say, Keith, if I lived in your heart and I was your Lord, you wouldn't be cutting in line. If I lived in your heart, you wouldn't be some smart act little boy. If I lived in your heart and I was your boss, your life would be different. And I sensed at that time the Holy Spirit drawing me to the Father. Not because I was a bad, good he, a bad kid he wanted to make good. I was simply a fourth grade kid that God wanted to love lavishly. And I prayed and asked Jesus in my heart, fourth grade, six flags over Texas. I might have told you all this story. I got baptized on the log ride the next ride. I went, no, I'm kidding, not really about that. But I accepted Jesus right there. When God gives an opportunity for me to be generous, whether it's the offering plate passing by, Denise and I putting our tithes on, or seeing a need out there somewhere, there's this little fourth grade boy that raises his head up in my life. And I'm going, oh, I don't want to give. I want this money for this. And that little fourth grade boy goes, but Jesus gave to you. And so our generosity is motivated from the generosity and the affection that God had for us when he saved our lives. And the Apostle Paul looks at Timothy and he writes this letter and he writes it to us. They're going, hey, there's nothing wrong with having the things that God gave you. There's nothing wrong with your riches and your wealth and your finances. But there'll be pitfalls you can fall into. So if you want to avoid the pitfalls, if you want to avoid those pitfalls, you need to live a generous life. What if? What if I kind of got everybody's attention going, hey, we're going to finish out here because I want to give you all something. What if I just, I want to give you the key to the best life you can ever have. Like, I want to give you this key, and if you take this key, this key will make sure that you can open and you can have a more blessed life. You can have a more rich life. You can have a more joyful life. I mean, this is the life you've always dreamed of. You want this key. I guarantee every single person here, like, give me that key. Give me that key. Read with me the next verse because Paul offers up the key. In verse 19, he says, in this way, meaning in this way, if you live your life the way we just talked about, this generous life, in this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they will take hold of the life that is truly life. 
Apostle Paul is going, here's what you have to instruct people. The church that Timothy was leading, but the church of South Sub Church. If you really want the life that you dreamed of, it is found through generosity. Because that's what gave you the life in the first place. The generous gift of God. And so church, we've done this series over generosity. And, and again, I've had people tell me, pastors going, Keith, don't ever do a four-week series over generosity your first year. People won't like that. As I said the first week we started this, this series is not to get the money out of your pocket. It's to get God to have all your heart. And it's only as we live a generous life with our time, our talents, and our treasures that we can experience the fullness that God has for us. And that fullness is the life that Paul talks about. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your generosity. Thank you that you gave and you give to us not out of obligation. You give to us out of your affection. And you gave us the greatest gift in Jesus, but God, you continue to give beyond that over and over and over. So today we simply just pause and say thank you. And what an appropriate weekend, Thanksgiving weekend, God. Thank you for your generosity in our lives. And my prayer is this, Jesus, is that we would use what you gave us so generously to be a blessing to those around us, to be a blessing to this church, to be a blessing to the ministry that you're doing through this church. So, holy God, may we live like you as we live so generously. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen.